The panelists I'm about to introduce to discuss corruption and ecosystem collapse are some of the bravest people in our region. And for that reason, it's fitting that this panel is going to be hosted by journalist Rihanna Rousseau, whose work has helped shine an invaluable light on the alleged dodgy dealings when it comes to land and the environment of our former deputy president, Didi Mabuza. Rihanna's work has shown that environmental matters can literally be life or death in this country. She's joined in conversation with another exceptionally brave local journalist, Julian Rodemeyer, who is now director of the East and Southern African region at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Crime, with the iconic former Zimbabwean finance minister, Tendai Biti, and two public servants who deserve all our support. That's Manda Alizulwi from the Green Scorpions and Francis Craigie, who's the chief director of enforcement at the Department of Environmental Affairs. Please welcome them. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Rihanna Rousseau. Thank you so very much for coming to join us today to discuss the dire topic of ecosystem collapse, um, something which we all hope will not happen in our lifetimes. Um, but at the rate we're going to stop the corruption that leads to such collapse, um, one wonders. Um, but I do have experts on this panel and I'm sure that they will guide us um, in this discussion about just how dire our situation is. Um, Tendai, I would like to start with you. Um, in dealing with the issue of corruption and why our politicians have become so corrupt, I really appreciated your description of the Zimbabwean government as kleptomaniacs, um, people who are stealing for the sake of stealing, people who got away with stealing 100 million and are now stealing a billion, um, people who set up a money laundering exercise um, when they are supposed to be governing a country. What is the agenda, really, to accumulate as many billions as you can in your lifetime? Is that all? Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's a privilege <laughs> to be here. I think that's the African challenge uh, uh, primitive accumulation, accumulation for the sake of uh, accumulation. Uh, here in South Africa, you call it uh, state capture. Uh, it's a phenomenon that's, that's global. Uh, it's a phenomenon that's, uh, that, that's universal. Uh, part of the challenge is that um, Africa actually has and is a resource uh, a rich. Uh, so there's so much wealth uh, but that wealth is then captured. That wealth is then, uh, uh, you know, you know, you know, diverted. Part of the challenge is that we've got weak institutions, uh, weak judiciaries, uh, weak uh, policing, uh, you know, services, uh, weak anti-corruption uh, uh, laws. So this is allowed uh, uh, to happen. But also our histories, the nature of these economies. They're extractive by nature. When, when Europe colonizes Africa, the accumulation model is that of you know, accumulation, extraction, extraction. If you were to wake up Cecil John Rhodes today, you wouldn't get surprised by the accumulation model. We're still exporting our diamonds, our, 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 our gold, uh, our tobacco. Uh, bar South Africa, there's little beneficiation and value addition in most of our, uh, our economies. We suffer from a, a, a you know you know you know a resource a, 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 a case. Uh, 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 fourth, the, 
while its resources flow out of Africa, uh, uh, there is no accountability on the demand side. So we, we produce uh, the minerals that people still own, uh, the, the gold that people still own. Uh, for, the, for the purposes of this uh, conference, the ivory that is uh, stolen. Illicit financial flows alone from Africa, about 90 billion US uh, dollars. They are largely in the commodity sector. Uh, when I was doing research for this meeting, uh, trade in rhino horn alone is a US $20 billion uh, industry. But there's no uh, accountability on those that are purchasing uh, illegally, uh, whether it's China, whether it's Japan, uh, our elephant uh, ivory, our, our rhino ivory. So it's time that the international community, the UN in particular, come up with an international protocol that also monitors uh, the demand, uh, demand side. So at the end of the day, you have got a very weak, fragile continent that actually is very rich, that suffers from a resource case. The resources become its, 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 its case. The resources become its biggest form of existential threats. Sometimes, so sometimes it's good enough to be poor because you can manage with the little resources than a situation you have right now where we are rich but we are poor because of kleptomania, because of uh, what I'll call, for lack of a better word, kakistocracy, governments by the West amongst us. And you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. I think we all <coughs> understand what a kakistocracy is. A kakistocracy is. <laughs> I think we all live with it every day. Julian, your investigations um, into rhino poaching, particularly in Mpumalanga and the Kruger National Park, for me, for the first time, showed how these gangsters, how deep these gangsters' tendrils are, that they can get to a laundry worker in the Kruger Park to smuggle a gun onto the premises that they can collect and use um, to kill a rhino. Um, look, a lot of people say South Africa is heading to becoming a gangster state, but I think in Mpumalanga, it would be a very fair description of what is happening in that province right now? Gangsters, gangster province? I think in many ways. I mean, you yourself have written about the predator politics of, of Mpumalanga. Um, it's, it's a province, and I think it makes an ideal case study of how ecosystems of organized crime become ever more entrenched. You know, the issues of corruption that Mpumalanga is dealing with today are issues that predate the existence of the province, yeah. predated coming into being in 94. If you look at the homelands that were cobbled together to make much of what is in Pumalanga today or make part of what is in Pumalanga today, there was systemic corruption there, which was encouraged by the apartheid state. Uh, many of the networks that you're dealing with, the political alliances that were forged, spread over time and, and have grown and deepened. Mm -hmm. And I think if you throw into that mix, you have um, systemic weaknesses in law enforcement, you have an absence of law enforcement and an absence of governance in many communities, uh, which ultimately with the economy as it is, um, you know, uh, massive unemployment, particularly youth unemployment, uh, you have parallel illicit economies taking shape, be it illegal mining, be it cash and transit heists, be it ATM bombings. Um, the gangsters become the people that uh, young men look up to. Um, they become the people that communities turn to for protection, 
for, for, you know, and for money, for loans, loan sharking, etc. So these groupings have become very, very deeply entrenched. And the Kruger National Park is not an, you know, wildlife idyll that operates on its own, even though people call it the Republic of Kruger. Um, its staff live in communities around the park. Um, they live in proximity to organized crime groupings. Um, they are threatened and intimidated by those organized crime groupings. The same goes for the police that, that work in those communities. Um, you know, their lives are at risk. Um, so it's not just always a case of corruption. But that has led to syndicates preying on, on people. You know, the fact that they're the loan sharks, they have access to financial information, they could see where, uh, you know, who is in trouble, they can offer them ways out. And I think the, pro the, the, the problem's been worsened by the so-called war on poaching, this militarized approach to poaching. Yeah. Um, there are, you know, big issues, uh, you know, huge amounts of money spent on fighting this uh, this nebulous war, which is, you know, it's a bit like the war on drugs. It's a never, you know, it's an, a forever war. Um, and that in itself builds resentment. You know, uh, if you look at staff quarters, why are those not being proved? Are we spending millions on fancy gadgets, etc., etc.? I think that what is encouraging, though, is that there's currently a very um, strong effort within Kruger from some of the people, some of the new leadership there, to try and turn this around. You know, they're facing a massive corruption problem. People said to me between 50 and 70% potentially of staff were on the take or were aiding criminal syndicates in some ways. So this is a long-term uh, long struggle. Um, but there have been investigations, for instance, financial investigations, which have uh, led to key figures, 16 arrests so far, two rangers uh, in the Stolzneck section of the park, and almost overnight, poaching stopped in that area. So with the right targeted investigations, the right people, with uh, efforts that are underway to try and improve staff conditions, improve staff morale, I think that there, there is a way that it can be turned around. If I can go to you, Manda, the thing we are discussing in Pumalanga. You are an, enforcement, you're an inspector um, in Mpumalanga for the Department of Environment Affairs. You track down these gangsters and these poachers and these people who are just polluting our environment. Um, we, we have 3,000 inspectors across South Africa um, and very few in Mpumalanga. I'm not expecting you to decide on the budget of the inspectorate um, or to do the hiring. Um, how difficult is your task because of the human resources that are available? Uh. Thank you very much. Uh, greetings to everyone. Um, you'll pardon me uh, in terms of my apprehension or apprehensiveness. My boss is sitting right over there. <laughs> 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 um, in all honesty, um, it's quite difficult uh, when it comes to the execution of our mandate uh, where you have to face up to the challenges within the actual office structure before you can go out there to deal with the actual problems. Um, I joined the, the, the department 2014 December. I was replacing somebody who was doing what I'm doing now. Nine years down the line, I'm still alone doing enforcement in terms of brown issues, which then means uh, my car is my office, literally. And uh, in terms of viability, you're dealing with different kinds of regions because we've got three regions 
in Pumalanga, uh, which would be Etlanzini, Herzband, and Nkangala. In that regard, you would have cases that are prevalent as per region in terms of what is happening. If we talk about Nkangala, everybody knows that's where it's at yeah. in terms of the coal industry and everything else. Uh, when you go to the low field, which is the part of Etlanzini, Nelspreit, then you have the issues that pertains to uh, it's a growing town, it's a growing city, so obviously you have a lot of development that is taking place there. But it becomes a serious problem when you have issues where, on the ground, uh, operational issues are being entertained even at a higher level where they're not supposed to have any business doing that yeah. in terms of where we are. Because when we have to execute our mandates, it has to be that the only person that I will be able to talk to in terms of my challenges has to be my boss, my, my supervisor, to say this is the way I want it executed and not to have other instructions, other orders that are coming from other sides. Because now that brings the question to say, we spend a lot of time coming up with fancy words in terms of identifying problems. Why don't we spend that as much time creating solutions? Yeah. In, in, in regards to that, you talk to forums like this and then you come and you say sustainable development. And as an enforcement person, the question becomes, is it really sustainable? Yeah. Because every given chance, you sacrifice the environment, yeah. the ecosystem, conservation, biodiversity, because you want to see something happening econo economically. Yeah. So we cannot be talking about sustainable development because today you are a policymaker. Policy yeah. Tomorrow you are perpetrating the very same policy that you, used, you raised your hands and said, I, and I have to be chasing after you, whereas you are the person who's sending me out there to do the job. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. I'm almost like one of those Americans when I read about Manda's work um, in chasing down these criminals, um, let me say it politely, criminals, who are raping our environment. Um, I feel like saying thank you for your service. Um, I really do. There we go. Francis, I have no doubt that the Department of Environment Affairs is committed to protecting the environment on behalf of all citizens of South Africa and on behalf of future citizens of South Africa. But I've been struggling to understand why there doesn't seem to be an overarching vision um, in the government when it comes to the task of protecting the environment. Why does the car power ship issue, for example, bounce between the Department of Energy, the Department of Transport, and your department? Um, why are permissions granted at different levels? Why is the good work that you are doing being overridden, it seems to me, by other departments? I really don't expect you to speak on behalf of the Department of Energy at all. Um, but I need to understand the Department of Environmental Affairs' attitude um, to protecting us, um, to protecting us against shells, seismic surveys of in protected marine environments, um, to protect us against ESCOM's pollution. That is your task. How comfortable can we as citizens be that there is an overarching vision that all of these departments can work together to protect us? 
Uh, th thanks very much, and, and good afternoon, everybody. Um, you know, I think the difficulty is, and, and I'm sure we're all very familiar with the Constitution, um, you know, in terms of the different mandates of different departments, we obviously need to um, understand um, certain legislation falls within certain departments. Um, when it comes to our department, forestry, fisheries, and the environment, we obviously have very good environmental legislation. Yep. But you also have to understand that that legislation is on par with other pieces of legislation. So one piece of legislation doesn't trump another. And so there will be different permissions required in different instances, um, but we cannot um, override another department, and that other department cannot override us. So if there is a permit that's been issued, but, for example, an environmental authorization is also required, then um, whatever that activity is, we'll have to wait for all of those different permissions. And, you know, we are completely, um, as, as environmental affairs, we very committed to um, ensuring that our legislation is complied with. Mm. Um, you know, I also come from the Compliance and Enforcement Unit, and, and that is our job. I mean, in terms of um, our concurrent competency, and that's always a, an issue, who has competence for what. Sometimes environmental issues might fall within the Department of Health, Department of Agriculture. Um, some of the issues might fall with us. Some might fall with minerals um, and energy. And so... We have to work together, and we, we have a number of coordinating forums, but that's not always to say um, that they, they work completely effectively. Um, we as the Green Scorpions try very hard to coordinate. So Manda, for instance, sits within our Mpomalanga department. I sit at national office, and we have Green Scorpions sitting within 19 different institutions across mm. the country, Sand Park, Sanby, Ezimvelo, KZN Wildlife, and we work very hard to look at our capacity, which is not a lot um, in the whole scheme of things. But again, we are um, fighting um, against other government priorities, and that's very important to understand. So um, if we go to Treasury to request more funding for compliance and enforcement, we're having um, to fight against funding for health for housing, for a whole lot of other critical issues. Um, and so it is always a, a fight for our survival, but we continue to, to do that fight. We continue to come up with innovative ideas to, to do what we are supposed to do and also work uh, with the other law enforcement units. I think what has been quite exciting recently is Cabinet approved the National Integrated Strategy to Combat Wildlife Trafficking. Um, it took us a number of years to get to the point of approval, but that really says to our security cluster um, that we as the Green Scorpions will work much more closely with the police, with the prosecuting authority, with the Financial Intelligence Center, and we'll be a lot better at um, you know, integrating our effort leveraging resources and really having the bigger impact. So that was only approved on the 10th of May. Um, so we're really gearing up to see how we can do better. Thank you. <laughs> I love, we live in hope. That's all we can do, I suppose. Um, Tendai, and I do want the rest of the panel to talk to this. Um, at the World Economic Forum in the meeting in Davos in January, um, they gave us a new buzzword, um, which is kind of the only thing I paid attention to, which is polycrisis. Polycrisis, you've heard this? Yes. Um, where 
we have been given a warning that um, so many countries are collapsing, that so many structures in society are collapsing now. And of course, the climate collapse is going to lead to crises of governance, civil unrest across the world. Um, what I find remarkable about Zimbabwe is, unlike South Africa, where in Zimbabwe the government has turned its back on the people and is busy with its own criminal enterprises, people are so much more resilient, I find, that in South Africa, the way people help each other, the way people feed each other, the way people transport each other, the way people educate each other. Am I being naive? Am I being optimistic? Do I, am I right to feel that the people of Zimbabwe, unlike the people of South Africa, have realized that no help is coming from the government and they need to help each other more? I think, I think that um, Zimbabweans long ago realized that they were on their own and that uh, they have to fend uh, for themselves. So when I speak to uh, friends here in South Africa, uh, if you take the power uh, issue, uh, everyone, everyone is whingering about the load shedding. Mm -hmm. uh, but back at home, it's not an issue. Yep. Because we've been in a permanent blackout yes. situation. Yes, yes. You know, for years. In my own household, I've got a generator. Yes. I've got solar panels and yes. so forth. The other day I was in Macro and I saw generators being, being sold. The other day I was in Macro uh, Woodmead and electricity just went off. And you know, they've got those giant screens where they'll be showing football and so forth. In Macro, they just switched over and I said, welcome to Zimbabwe. <laughs> so <laughs> I think the tragedy about uh, the tragedy, the strength of South Africa is that you've got strong institutions. You've got a strong judiciary, particularly your constitutional courts, a strong, a strong uh, media. Uh, this platform is being yeah. hosted by the Daily Maverick, for instance. A very strong, buoyant uh, civic society. But you also have so much contradictions. Inequality, uh, poverty, in a country that by any standard is actually uh, rich. Your levels of inequality, the gene coefficient, you only compete with Nigeria and mm. Kenya on the African continent. So what shocks us, those of us who come north of the Limpopo, is that you are pressing the self-destruct button, trying to get where we are. Yes. We are trying to get where you are, but you are desperate to cross the Limpopo. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we find it amazing yeah. that you South Africans you know, oppressing this self-destruct, uh, uh, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know, button. So I think there is a room for introspection, uh, reflection, and so forth. But speaking for Zimbabwe, the crisis is one of leadership. Mm. The crisis is one of uh, governance. Solve the leadership question, you solve the Zimbabwean crisis. But you can't solve that if you have an election delivery system that doesn't deliver, that, that aborts. Since 1980, we have had more than 12 uh, general elections, but all of them without fail have been uh, contested. Yeah. Elections are a source of disharmony, 
elections are a source of a conflict. So the bottom line is that we, knew, we need new leadership. We need a, a new consensus. We need a new social uh, uh, you know, contract. And without that, we'll continue wallowing where we are right now. Just to yeah. give you one example before I shut up. In 1980, yeah, Zimbabwe's GDP was 7 billion US dollars. Mm. Kenya's GDP was 7 billion dollars. Zambia was about 3.4 billion US dollars. Fast track in 2023, Kenya's GDP is 264 billion dollars. Zimbabwe is 18 billion dollars. Zambia is now 64 billion dollars. Mm. So 44 years of independence has put a premium yeah. on the quality of life in Zimbabwe. Yes. And what is the difference between Kenya and Zimbabwe? It's leadership, leadership, leadership. Yes. yes. <clears throat> Julian, what is your um, opinion on the warning that the world is heading towards these polycrises and civil unrest and civil uprisings against governments? I mean, the conditions are ripe in South Africa. Um, people do say at middle-class dinner parties that we're becoming Zimbabwe, but I actually think we're worse because we have the violence um, in South Africa that you don't find, the ordinary day-to-day -day violence that you don't find in Zimbabwe. I feel safe as a woman walking in the streets of Zimbabwe the way I don't in Johannesburg. What are the prospects in South Africa for this uprising when we reach stage eight or the uprising where the price of food becomes so unaffordable that people finally begin to starve. What, what, what do you think? Well, I think um, uh, All right, so I'll try and speak more loudly. Sorry. <laughs> Apologies. Um, so um, I, I think that... The prospects of that are very real. You know, we live in a deeply unequal society with unemployment levels that are completely unsustainable, where uh, there seems to be no urgency really from various elements in cabinet and government to, to make significant changes. Um, where you have... Sorry, this thing is making all kinds of noises. Let's try again there. Um, where you have, uh, and I think that we lurch from one crisis to another. If you bring it back to a sort of a law enforcement picture or you bring it back to a societal picture, if you look at a province like Mpumalanga, uh, where you know, I've been spending a lot of time doing research, um, pr protests are growing, and protests have been growing for many years. And the Kruger National Park has become something of a tool in many of those protests, where communities whose... Uh, where the state is absent, where their pleas for um, housing, for water, for economic development are going unheard, are having to use that as a bargaining chip uh, in protest. So they'll seal off the roads around the park. You know, some of those communities have been trying to get access to uh, water and various other things since 1994. Yeah. It's an extraordinarily long period of time. If you bring it back to crime, we have um, you know, a situation where I think... Uh, there seems to be no uh, strategic approach from the police, particularly, to deal with issues around organized crime, to deal with the way that organized crime has metastasized in our communities, how it's become so deeply entrenched. Uh, you know, this leads to communities resorting to vigilante violence. 
Um, and we're seeing the numbers of vigilante murders, you know, increasing. We're seeing the numbers of assassinations in South Africa increasing. You know, we documented 140 uh, in 2022, uh, which was up uh, on the 2021 figure. Of those, 40 political assassinations, up 33%. Um, and that is a conservative figure yeah. because there are so many that we don't document. We yeah. rely on, you know, happening in rural communities. So I think all of these crises, you know, and I think the, the response in many cases from law enforcement is to lurch from one crisis to another. You know, we see, for instance, that horrific incident in Krugersdorp where, uh, where a number of women were gang raped, which brought focus on, on uh, illegal mining. Suddenly you've got the task force sweeping in, you've got tactical response teams, you have specialist investigators uh, on the scene. Within a couple of weeks, they've moved on to the next crisis. Um, near Kruger, Numbi Gate, which has been, for instance, a, a, a focus of um, uh, attacks on visitors to the park for, for years now, in fact, um, going over more than a decade, a German tourist is murdered. Um, again, a flurry of activity to apprehend the killers. Two months later, two security guards sitting on that same road, watching the road, trying to keep people safe, are both shot and their firearms taken off them. Did we hear much about that? No. Was there a flurry of, of activity? So I think it's about focus. You know, how do we, we have, the, the scale of this thing is so immense. If we take, you know, environmental crime, wildlife crime, organized crime more broadly, uh, it's almost, you know, you feel almost powerless to focus on. And I think what's necessary is a very clear strategy and we need to start looking at how do we prioritize focus on crimes based on the harms that they cause to society. You know, you'd think murder is one. Obviously, that is a very, very serious issue. But what is the crime that's causing the greatest harm to our economy and our country right now? And that would be uh, attacks on infrastructure, the looting of ESCOM, uh, the massive rampant corruption that seeped into every corner of that utility, um, cable theft. Um, you know, all of these things come together. Um, and we need to somehow find a way of prioritizing those and focusing those, but we need the right resources. You know, they're good police out there. They're good investigators in the Hawks, but they're few and far between. The best of the best in many cases have long gone to the private sector yeah. because it's, it's a toxic environment in which to work. The police is a toxic environment in which to work these days, and we need that leadership focus. Manda, you have had more success this year in Mpumalanga with the police and the NPA in prosecuting people for environmental crimes. Um, do, are you optimistic that this good relationship will continue? Are you optimistic that you will eventually arrest and send to a court of law um, some of the masterminds behind the environmental crimes in Mpumalanga? Uh, thank you. Uh, it will be in different folds. <laughs> uh, firstly, I'm very optimistic. I have to be. Mm. I have to be because then again, uh, we are championing the victories. In a sense that uh, as much as we are the regulators and we have different spheres of government, mm. It doesn't make sense to me to go out there and prosecute the regulated community. Now, my chief director will, will allude to that because now there's a new fault into our problem in terms of the investigation. We are now 
having to refocus our energy and resources into investigating our own colleagues, yeah. the local municipalities, yeah. to a point where, in my province, only two local municipalities are not subject of investigation for wastewater, infrastructure, works, in simple terms, sewage or sewer. In some of the regions in my province, they call me the shit champion. <laughs> and I take, the, I take that on my strides. Yeah. Because that's what's happening. My challenge with that is, why should we be investing so much time reminding colleagues in terms of their own mandate? As, as, I, as I speak now, we were in court on Tuesday. Uh, we sat here, and then we listened to issues pertaining to climate change. As it is, we are a water-scarce region. Yeah. Do we really have to go and pollute the little water that we have? Yes. And that's exactly what, we, what is happening. We're having this discussion in terms of we are going to, ex- to, to, to prosecute, convict you, take your money, give it back to you to do the actual work that you were supposed to do, the very same work that you are paid to do in any case. Yeah. So that's where we are. Yeah. So now with that dimension, now the work becomes even more and bigger because now we're no longer going to... It, 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 it makes sense to me to go and say, this is the regulated community. Yeah. But now we've got these colleagues. Almost every single one of the towns that are aligned to the Val River. When people in Houten complain about uh, the Val River, the Val Dam being polluted, contaminated, I look at them and I'm thinking, are you even aware that that is tertiary mm. contamination and pollution. Mm. We are responsible for primary and secondary pollution. We are literally polluting the Valdem from the source. Yeah. It's like somebody is holding a bucket of shit and just hoying them. <laughs> That's how I feel. Yep. Mm. Uh, excuse yep. my language. No, no, it is uh, like that. It That's is. how I feel. Yeah. Every single town. I'm yeah. talking MLO. Yeah. The Val is from Brayton. From Brayton it goes to MLO. From there it's Bethal. From there, it's Secunda. When you go past Secunda, you've got Standard 10. Standard 10, you've got Balfour, up until Houten. So every single one of those. And remember, the infrastructure that we, or the the democratic government, inherited, there was nothing wrong. It was perfect. The only thing that we ought to have done is to maintain, maintain, maintain. Yep. Thank you. And uh, finally, when we do go to these people to say, let's sit down, we're sitting down with you because we are looking to convict you. We're prosecuting you as it is, we're looking to convict you. And they come back and say, what about cooperative governance? Yeah. Cooperative governance, if human life is not a priority, what are your priorities? Yes. Thank you. That is the, that is the question, yeah. So, so Francis, again, the signs are becoming clearer. We have cholera in Hammanskral as a result of a corrupt tender. I, I'm sure the investigations aren't complete yet, but everybody's pointing the finger at this corrupt tender which led to the contamination of water in Hammanskral. 
We have the power stations in Mpumalanga which have been sabotaged because of corruption. We have these aging power stations in Mpumalanga which should have been, we should be shutting down, but can't because of corruption. So these human harms are escalating. I mean, the illnesses from pollution in Mpumalanga is just climbing by the day. We now have cholera. <laughs> what what do we need to do? Yeah. How do we need to ensure that this collapse of our systems doesn't lead to the collapse of the health of the citizens of South Africa? So, so I think, <laughs> I mean, you draw a very, very bad picture. And I, I think, um, as Manda says, we have to be confident. We have to be positive um, that we can make a difference. Because I think if, if, for example, what the Green Scorpions are doing now, they don't do anymore, I think we're going to have even a bigger problem. I think what we are trying to do, and it's about adapting. And I think we have had to adapt, you know, 10 years ago, um, when you used to look at what is the role of somebody who's a green scorpion, we would go out there, we would pick up some pollution issue, we would serve a notice, um, and then normally somebody would come into compliance. That is not what we're dealing with at the moment. And so what we've had to do is really begin to train our officials around how to do investigations that are much more complex. Because, again, we cannot rely, unfortunately. um, I think Julian said there's a handful of very good police officials, but there's not enough of them. And so what we're having to do is, and, and for example, around the sewage system, we have a crisis within South Africa around failing sewage infrastructure. And so we're not just doing an investigation to pick up pollution and indicate what is in that pollution and the damage to the environment. We're having to go in and get search and seizure warrants. We're having to follow the money through the banking system. We're having to, whereas the Green Scorpions hadn't had to do that in the past, we're actually having to investigate for corrupt issues. Um, we're having to follow the money through different bank accounts. We've now developed within our department the Environmental Enforcement Fusion Centre. We have seven analysts that sit and actually look at the different um, aspects of crime, uh, from the financial issues through to cell phone analysis, downloading of cell phones. We've had to become a lot more technologically savvy, and we've had to step in um, to do certain investigations that we wouldn't have had to do in the past. And again, working with our partners, but understanding um, that there are some limitations that we've had to fill the gaps. Again, we don't have enough people, and I think that, you know, we're really looking internally um, at how we can increase our capacity, because if we, into the future, are going to have the future that I know the youth spoke about this morning, there is a period of time within South Africa that our compliance and our enforcement is going to have to become really strong, and we're going to have to, unfortunately, take on those syndicates, take on the illicit parallel economies, and we're going to have to do it together. It it can't just be about us as government. We've got a number of partnerships currently with NGOs, with private sector. Um, Wildlife in this country is partly owned by the private sector. It's not only government-owned. And so we have to join hands in the fight. Um, Just 
Lastly, what's quite exciting is our new um, initiative with the South African Anti-Money Laundering Task Force, and I see APSA's emblem up there. The banking sector has come on board so incredibly to really assist us with environmental crime issues, and so is the transport sector. And so there's various sectors in South Africa that really want to help, and I think we have to do it together, and I think it's really an exciting time. Yeah. Um, we are running out of time. Um, quickly, before we go to questions from the floor, Tendai and maybe Julian, Total is still doing what Total does in, in Africa. Shell is still doing what Shell does here in Africa. But of concern, I think, to many people, and I don't think we understand it, is what is the role of Russia? What is the role of China in degrading the environment through resource extraction in South Africa, in Africa today, not South Africa, in Africa today. Um, and how do we monitor this and how do we hold them accountable for their actions? We haven't ever managed to hold Shell accountable for their actions. How are we going to hold the Chinese and the Russians accountable? It's a very important question, uh, the role of uh, China in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, I would like to submit that um, if um, what China is doing today were to be done by your traditional uh, Western uh, powers, uh, accusations of um, neocolonialism mm -hmm. and imperialism would be, would be mad. Yeah. So you have capital coming from Southeast Asia, uh, coming from the East into Africa, uh, which is unregulated, and it's uh, uh, falling, uh, 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 it's being invited by very vulnerable, fragile uh, governments yes. uh, that it is taking advantage of. Uh, so you have a, a very uneven and unequal situation uh, that is being created on the African uh, continent, right across, uh, uh, you know, the African uh, continent. So African governments are being made to contract on substandard uh, you know, contracts, yes. very extractive contracts. Some of the contracts, uh, they even supply you with the labor. They even force you yes. to oh, uh, yes. you know, supply the, uh, the, the labor. Uh, so Africa must revisit its, 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 its relationship uh, with Southeast Asia because it's a very, very unequal and uneven uh, uh, you know, polity. It goes back to the point that I made that um, uh, we need an international convention that uh, deals with economic inequality, inequality, that deals, for instance, with illicit financial uh, uh, you know, flows. Uh, for, for decades, Africa has always been extracted. Yeah. And it has been extracted through the medium of very avaricious leaders, whether it's Mobutu Seseko uh, in the Democratic Republic of, of, of Congo or Zaire, whether it's Wofet Bwini in, in Cote d'Ivoire, uh, Siad Bari in, 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 in Somalia, uh, uh, the various Tinpot leaders that have uh, lacerated yeah. Africa. Uh, but this Sanya Bacha, for instance, in, in Nigeria, these monies are put in Swiss account, now Dubai, now, now Hong Kong. But no one holds to account Dubai or Hong Kong mm -hmm. and so forth. So we need an international instrument that also holds the demand side 
uh, to account. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, that uh, instrument is as long overdue as it is uh, uh, welcome. Yeah. Julian, Southeast Asia, China, Russia. I think, I think our, you know, Africa's relationship with China is, is quite complex, and I think that there, are, there is an argument to be made that there is certainly a beneficial aspect to it too. Um, but, but picking up on Russia, I think the, the primary example, we did some research of this a while ago, of uh, you know, Russia as a malign actor in, in Africa would be through the involvement of the Wagner mercenary group mm -hmm. in countries like the Central African Republic, which is uh, where they are actively involved in the extractors, uh, in the extractors' gold in particular. Um, the urgency and the need for Russia to extract gold is growing as sanctions take a bite. And, you know, this is a group that have been linked to human rights atrocities, including massacres, extrajudicial executions. Um, their tentacles have spread across the continent. Uh, they're also involved in information, disinformation campaigns. Um, for instance, the... Uh, the Internet Research Agency, which falls under Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, they have been malign actors, for instance, in Madagascar. There's also issues around extractions there. So, you know, that is deeply problematic. And I think that um, what, what at the moment they're still involved in, in Africa, some of their troops have been taken up in the, you know, the so-called meat grinder in Bakhmut, where they are now withdrawing from. Um, is this influence going to expand? And what does that mean for us? The other alternative is that the Wagner Group fragments, which could even be potentially worse, because now you have hardened mercenaries with expertise, with connections in, in various countries, uh, and smaller groupings uh, you know, breaking away from that. So I think that, that in many ways is a challenge. Okay. Uh, Amanda, we are all very concerned about the massacre of our rhinos and the concerned that rhinos might go extinct if we allow the poachers to continue at the rate that they're currently poaching. Um, we are all finding octopi, octopuses, octopi, very cute and very intelligent, and they, seems to, they seem to have a reawakened in people a desire to save the marine ecosystem um, because we're suddenly discovering so much about marine life we didn't know before. But Across South Africa, tiny succulents, tiny reptiles are being stolen at an astonishing rate. I'm not sure people know how important these succulents are, how important these other animals are that are also being poached in South Africa. I mean, abalone poaching we've known of for decades and we've never been able to stop it. Can you talk about the other crimes besides the rhinos that we all seem to be so fixated on? The rest of our ecosystem theft and what you guys are doing about that. Uh, thank you, once again. Uh, I think um, it becomes uh, a, a glaring reality. Uh, for, for, fortunate, fortunately for us in Bumalanga, we happen to also be part of the prof joints. So whenever we have your seasonal operations, your Easter, your, 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 your what you call it, uh, your Easter holidays, your... Christmas holidays, mm. uh, you get to a point where as much as we have good working relations with uh, other law enforcement agencies and the NPA or DPP, uh, you get to see a lot of loopholes. Yeah. And these loopholes are created by us as law enforcement. Mm. I will tell you this for a fact. Uh, 
there is no need for our neighbors to even bother with passports. You walk through our borders. You walk through our borders. You don't even have to, to, to bribe. Maybe it's easier, it's, it's, it's a bit difficult on the Bay Bridge side because there's a river. If it's the rainy season, the river will then play a role. But on the other side, uh, there is no river. Yeah. What they do, they just walk, circumvent the gates, and then the, 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 the bus will stop, mm-hmm. offload them, the driver will go in, do his immigration uh, requirements, everybody will just go around the fence, they will meet the bus on the other yes. side. So if we have people dealing with, for example, pangolin, Pangolins, that yeah. is how we get these things smuggled out. We're saying smuggled out, smuggled out because of, it's a word that we use. Yeah. How is he smuggling this thing out if he's just walking through our borders? Yeah. Can we really say that? Yeah. We have to be realistic about these things. One of the inst- instances was when we caught a g- two guys with, a ri- with, a ri- with two rhino horns at the boot of the car. It was not even covered. Yeah. It was just right there. When you opened the boot, it was looking at, right, right at you. Because they know there's nothing that's going to be done. Yeah. One last thing, one second. You get to a point where somebody's driving from Cape Town to Maputo. I'm giving an example, but that's a reality yes. that happened. And he gets to the last point. And then everybody surrounds that vehicle because it looks unroadworthy. There's a lot of illegal things there. And this guy says to you, I've gone past 24 checkpoints. You are the last one. And you think you can stop me here? Yeah. And that's the reality. Yeah. And we need to think about that. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. I have a question for you from the audience, Tendai. Um, Toko Madonko wants to know um, about the structural nature of corruption in Zimbabwe, how deeply entrenched corruption is in the structures of government in Zimbabwe, how endemic it is. Yeah, I think the, the, the basic challenge we have is that uh, we have uh, weak systems, uh, the institutions that I've uh, spoken about. Mm. Uh, the second challenge we have is that um, it, it is a rich country. Uh, we have um, 64 minerals, for instance. Mm. We have world-class deposits uh, of, of diamonds, mm. world-class deposits of, of, of gold, of, of, of platinum and, and PMGs. Uh, we have world-class deposits now of, 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 of lithium. Mm. Uh, lithium is costing about eighty thousand uh, dollars, you know, in a ton. So the resources are there, but we've got a weak regulatory uh, regulatory uh, framework. Um, uh, if you take the fuel industry, you know, you know, you know it's another commanding height of uh, you, know, you, know, you know corruption. It's a two billion dollar industry, monopolized by few companies that uh, bring in uh, the, the, the fuel. Here we are talking about uh, the, the environment, uh, the, the extent of uh, the looting of, of ivory from, 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 from Zimbabwe. At one stage, we had uh, our rhinoceros population reduced to, to just 60 animals in the entire uh, country. And by the way, the price of a rhino horn 
is three times the price of a similar uh, weight in gold. So, mm-hmm. so rhino is three times the cost mm-hmm. of uh, you know you know you know you know you know you know gold. So the resource case is on um, uh, on uh, Zimbabwe. So the bottom line is that um, we need to put institutions, strong institutions in, in, in place, a functional state, uh, basically, strong leadership, a new consensus. The 79% of our people are living in extreme poverty, mm-hmm. surviving on USA, uh, $1.75. Uh, a lot of them are, are here in South Africa. Yes. We've got four million people in the in the diaspora. So the issue of poverty is is, is, is critical. The absence of uh, service delivery uh, is, is 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 critical. So you need to build a sustainable state yeah. because building a sustainable state means you are able to create a state that can provide for its citizens. That minimizes the temptation and the seduction of corruption. But it's endemic. Yeah. But this is an African story. Yeah, this is an African story from Bashir in, 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 in Sudan, uh, Bokasa in, in, in Central Africa uh, uh, you know, Republic, the, the uh, coup leaders in, in places like Ghana and uh, Nigeria. It's an African story. It's a story of fragility. It's a story of vulnerability. It's a story of uh, state failure. It's a story of weak institutions. It's a story of uh, disempowered uh, citizens. It's a story of constitutions or, or, or uh, 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 constitutions without constitutionalism, and that's the story of the of the post north of Limpopo. So we need to bring strong institutions, the rule of law. All these things are yeah. important. Yeah. Francis, a question for you is what the department is doing, and I know you you are in enforcement, but maybe you do know what the Department of Environment Affairs is doing to teach the public or educate the public on the prospects and the difficulties and the crisis of ecosystem collapse. Um, What is the department doing to be more proactive as climate change, obviously the climate is changing, there's no longer any doubt about that. What is your educational role in ensuring that everybody understands how dire the situation is and what needs to be done? Uh, So I I think as you said, my my difficulty um, with responding to that one is that I don't sit specifically within that part of the department. However, I do we do have an educational unit within the department that is responsible uh, for awareness. A lot of the um, curriculum within the, the school system is developed through that process. But I do think that there probably is the need to really step up that, that part. Um, you know, obviously, as the national department, we work very closely with our provincial departments as well. And I think that there probably is a need to really, when we come together in our intergovernmental forums, to really focus on what is that message we need to be putting out there around resilience. Um, You know, within the climate change space, there is a lot of work that is happening, but to really reach the people on the ground, um, you know, I'm not sure that there's necessarily enough being done around that. Um, So I'll definitely take that message back into the department, um, and and I can also provide maybe somebody specific to, to speak to somebody from Daily Maverick that could answer that question. Um, thanks. Julian, do you think that there is political will in South Africa 
to avert the climate collapse. Um, do you think there's political will in South Africa now and there will be in the future? Last question, sorry, Rebecca. <laughs> are, you, are we being evicted? This is just a, a subtle <laughs> <laughs> wrap-up. Tick-tock, tick-tock, Julian. Tick-tock. <laughs> So I think, I think the problem that we have, and it's not just around climate change, is that there seems at this stage to be an absence of political will to effect the necessary change. Uh, you know, we need, uh, you know, just coming back to the sort of law enforcement issue, which is what my real sort of exp area of, of focus is, um, we need significant changes to be effected there. We don't need 10,000 new police on the streets. What we need are the people with the right skills, the right capacity to do target investigations that go after the illicit networks and, and illicit economies that are causing the gravest harms. And I think that, you know, I think that there are individuals, as I've said earlier, who are doing remarkable work in government, out of government, but there are not enough of them. And the problem is that we've lost so many good people to the private sector yeah. and elsewhere. Yeah. And how do you rebuild that? How yeah. do you rebuild within you know, the various government departments that need to, to see change. Um, so I think that, for me, is, is the struggle. And I don't think, look, I don't think at all that, you know, we're beyond hope and that we should throw our hands in the air. Um, this, is that, this is the part where I get reinvited back to dinner parties. But basically, um, you know, I, I think that we, we have a very simple choice here. Is we live here, this is our country. This is the country we care about deeply. And we are committed to it. Yeah. And we can't just simply go, you know, the, the, the sky is falling, the end is nigh, and give up. And I think that the worrying part about discussions like that is very much it ends up in that way. You know, there is always hope. There is always this constant push. There are people who are pushing, who yeah. are doing remarkable work. Um, and we need to take inspiration from them. Yes, we do. Great question. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you to Thank our wonderful you. panel, to our host, Brianna. Thanks so much.